It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day, in the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount Plus. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions and you never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Roll Pod, third edition of the week of Roll Pod, an Alabama sports podcast from Bama 247. I am your host, Cody Goodwin. Joining me today, he does every week during the midweek, although last week I think we just took Thanksgiving off. Um, it's Mike Rodak. And Mike, I'm going to lead off with a question. Why does the college football playoff committee like Oregon? Well, Bo Nix, I think, is a big reason why. In fact, we heard... Uh, Boo Corrigan basically was asked the same question by Reese Davis, you know, during the the show on Tuesday night. And he, uh, you know, he mentioned Oregon's offense. He mentioned Oregon beating um, Oregon State, which he said the committee respects. And he said that they held Oregon State to seven points as opposed to the 34 they had been averaging. But then he also mentioned Bo Nix's 78% completion percentage. Um, Which I think rightfully so a lot of people said, (laughs) how is that exactly? relevant um to the whole discussion but i think from a broader sense i don't know if it was uh necessarily articulated the best way by boo corrigan and he's been a little bit problematic i think for the committee in some of these interviews and trying to get their points across but i can assume based on some of the data points that he was giving that they like oregon because oregon's beat up on bad teams and they haven't messed around with bad teams necessarily uh and they also have an offense that's very good and really, I think, second in in the country uh, in terms of offensive efficiency. They're also second in the country in terms of overall efficiency. So from a metric standpoint on just their overall, how they turn yards into points and how they turn plays into yards, they do a really good job. Strength of schedule-wise, not so good. But I will say those efficiency numbers do take into account the opponent. They're adjusted for opponents. So just because they have the second – best efficiency rating, you might say they're playing really bad teams, but that is taking taking your opponent into account for that. So um, I, I think there is some measure of respect they have for that, um, respect they have for a Heisman favorite, um, and kind of the potential points that Oregon can put up. Um, and our defense is pretty good too. But yeah, the strength of schedule is not there compared to other teams. And, you know, Washington is the one – really good team that they've played and they lost to Washington close game. They have a chance to beat Washington here. So I guess if they win that, um, then they've played Washington twice, a top 
wherever Washington ends, we'll have to see if they lose this game, where will Washington be probably like six or seven. You're playing a top seven team twice in one season, um, which a lot of teams can't say. So, uh, yeah, Oregon's a really interesting case because they, uh, you know, we've talked about, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but like you could say a one loss conference champion, Oregon would not compare favorably to a one loss com- or yeah, one loss conference champion, Alabama, but they're ranked higher. And I think if Oregon wins Saturday by all of these metrics, they seem to be a pretty safe bet over Alabama. Um, and it would really come down to like Alabama and Texas if, if Texas wins or Alabama and Florida State if Florida State wins. So Oregon is where they are. I mean, I don't know if there's you can try debating it and all that. Like the committee seems to like the efficiency part of Oregon. And that's just that's not good team, enough for me. Team that's, by that's team, not- they seem to kind of pick, um, you know, what they like the most. So that's not good enough for me. That's I'm I'm I've been annoyed each of the last two or three, you know, which is probably playing right into the college football playoff committee and the idea of it being a TV show and wanting to get discourse and yada, yada, yada. But like, I am just like, that's that is not good enough for me personally. Um, I am I am frustrated by the inconsistencies of the committee. And it's not even an Alabama thing like Oregon shouldn't be number five. Like, and I, like, I don't know that anything about, you know, the Friday's game against Washington in the Pac-12 championship is going to change that if things break Alabama's way. Like, here's their current resumes. Um, Alabama, 11 and one, the combined record of their 2023 opponents, 83 and 59, pretty good winning percentage there. They, Alabama has wins over six teams that have winning records, and they have three wins over teams that are in the most recent college football playoff rankings. Pretty good resume. Texas. Combined record of their opponents this past season, 81 and 63, pretty similar to Alabama. Um, They have five wins over teams with winning records, and they have two wins over teams that are currently ranked, including one over Alabama. So you have them ahead of them. Cool. Ohio State, 11 and 1. They're not going to play for their conference championship game, but they still have a very good resume. Opponents' records, 82 and 62. They have six wins over teams with winning records. They have two wins over teams that are ranked in Penn State and Notre Dame. And then you get to Oregon, 11 and 1. Cool. The combined record of their schedule of the teams that they played 72 and 72 500 even they have only three wins over teams that finished the season with a winning record and they have only one win over a team that is currently ranked in the playoff Oregon State again this isn't an Alabama thing like Oregon should be eight like you can shuffle five six seven however you want but like I just don't understand and then to your point the fact that Boo Corrigan cannot articulate specifically or even give a reasonable justifiable explanation as to why Oregon is five makes it all the more frustrating. And I like, this is nothing personal against Oregon. They just have the worst resume of all the one loss teams. So it's just confounding to see them on top of the other one lost teams. And I just don't get it. And I like efficiency. Cool. The fact that they're beating up on bad teams. I don't think that should count as much as the committee believes that it should count, but Talk me off the ledge. Like why? Like, I don't know. This is just irrational frustration. I mean, point margin is always going to play a role in the metrics. Um, But there's an argument that it shouldn't matter. Like you said, in fact, on the basketball end, you know, the net rankings that will come out in basketball in a few weeks, when they first came out a couple of years ago, when they first were introduced, they took into account point margin. But 
it was kind of figured out that it wasn't necessarily smart to reward teams for putting up a bunch of points and, you know, the last couple minutes of a basketball game when there's everybody's fouling or in the case of a football game, when, you know, you're already up six touchdowns on Portland state and you're adding a seventh or an eighth or ninth, whatever it was, eight scored 81 points. So they scored a lot of touchdowns. Um, so there's, there was an argument that like point margin shouldn't matter. In fact, it's gone from the net rankings now in basketball. So, um, but a lot of these computer models still will certainly take that into account. And in fact, I was listening to, um, you know, Bill Connolly, who does a lot of the um, statistical stuff for ESPN a couple weeks ago on the radio. And he was basically asked, like, what's what's holding back Alabama? And he said point margin um, was part of it for them. And that was before the Kentucky game. That was before they beat up on Kentucky. That was before they beat up on Chattanooga. Um, so at that point, you were looking at, you know, 14-point win over LSU, but also, you know, close win Arkansas and the Tennessee game was still fairly close. And the Ole Miss game was fairly close and the AM game was fairly close. So um like whereas Oregon, you know, beat up on Utah, you know, they beat up on Oregon State. Um Washington State, I think they won pretty comfortably there. So uh I mean that's that is what it is. And um Look, I think with Oregon, too, it's just like you, you think they're going to be really good in the playoff because they have Bo Nix and because they have that offense. So there is an argument that if you're picking the four best teams that you want the best offense in there, the best quarterback in the country, which, again, you can make an argument it's Jaden Daniels and not Bo Nix, but Bo Nix right now is probably going to win Heisman. Um, like you can make an argument that that's the team that should be in there. I mean – Again, I'm looking 38-24 Washington State's not anything crazy. And then you can also look at it from the perspective, and maybe the, maybe the committee's doing this too, if they're ranking the one-loss teams and they're saying um, Oregon's one loss was on the road by three points to a top-10 team in Washington, and then they're saying Ohio State's next because their one loss was by six points or whatever it was against Michigan um, on the road against a top-five team, top-three team, versus and this is where Alabama gets hurt. They lost at home by 10 points. The top 10 team in Texas, but losing at home by double digits is, I think, where Alabama gets hurt in some of these comparisons. Um, even though it was in September, the committee's already come out and said it doesn't matter to them uh, when it was. But when you're stacking the one losses and saying which loss is the worst, Texas's loss is probably the worst, Oklahoma right now. Um, but also Alabama is the only one out of those four one loss teams right there that has lost at home and it did it by double digits and Texas was running out the clock at the end of that game. So that's what hurts Alabama. I think more than anything else in, in this whole discussion, I would argue that that means Texas should almost always be ahead of Alabama. I don't know that that result should have any bearing on why Oregon is the number one, one loss team. Like that's where it just doesn't connect for me. So they're saying that Texas lost in a neutral site to a top, whatever Oklahoma is right now, top 20 team. And they're saying Oregon, they're giving credit to because Oregon lost by three points on the road to a, now a top five, top three Washington team, in fact. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't get it. And I, the more I think about it, the more frustrated I get. I guess the one piece of saving grace, and we'll get into this, but like if things break in Alabama's favor and they need a couple of teams to win this weekend and first and foremost, they need to beat Georgia. We'll get into that as well on today's show. Hi, welcome to Roll Pot. Um, 
the one saving grace that I think the committee has has been consistent on is that if you win a big game convincingly, you get rewarded. You look at when, um, you know, what, what are the examples here? Um, Oregon beating Utah, they moved up. Well, well, so the, well, the examples that I looked at, um, you know, well, yeah, I guess Oregon. That's, well, when, no, that's was, when Oregon jumped Alabama was after they beat Utah and Oregon before that was ranked behind them in the polls. And then they came out the next week and they moved up. Um, well, the examples that I have actually thought about were uh, was actually Washington when Washington went into Corvallis and beat Oregon State. And it wasn't the best game, but it was a win on the road. Um, they jumped Florida State to get into the top four. And then a week later, Georgia pounds Ole Miss at home, but they still, you know, 52 to 17. It was as convincing as convincing could be. And they jumped Ohio State from number two to number one. So that leads me to believe that if the door opens for Alabama to get into the top four and they beat top ranked Georgia, I I would think that means the committee would say, okay, Alabama deserves to jump into this. Now there's a lot of other dominoes that are going to play into this, right? Because I think if Alabama's in the top four, Texas probably deserves a spot in the top four. Um, but I don't know that there's another team in the country that would have the resume that Alabama has, which should help them right in this particular scenario, comparing all the one loss teams, um, you know, and then I think by virtue, it also, you know, help Texas as well. But that's, that's the one consistent thing I've we've seen from the committee over the last month. And I wonder if that plays a role, if one, the opportunity opens and two Alabama takes care of business this weekend. Yeah. And I think, look, part of it too, is where Alabama started. Sometimes you kind of have to go all the way back to see where, how a team started. I'm not talking about the playoff rankings, but I'm talking about preseason polls and Alabama was a little bit lower than usual. They started number four in the AP poll, which was the lowest in 13 years. And they started number three in a coach's poll. And so when you're starting at that point and then you lose to Texas, you fall, but you're falling further than you would have if you were starting number one or number two. And so then you're trying to make up more ground because of where you were placed in the preseason poll. Um, and, and in this case, I'm looking, you know, coaches poll, for instance, Alabama fell from three to 10, after losing to Texas, they fell from three to 10 in the AP poll after losing the Texas, um, which then the AP poll and the coaches poll, as much as the committees will never admit it, that's kind of the basis for where they start looking when they start making these rankings in late October. Like that's, that's kind of the guide is where have the AP and the coaches poll been. And they're typically pretty close uh, when the, when the first playoff rankings come out. So that was a seven spot drop. For Alabama, again, losing to Texas at home by 10 points. Yes. That's the key part of that. Whereas if you look down the road, uh, when Oregon lost to Washington, they only fell how many spots? They, spell, they fell one spot in the AP poll from number eight to number nine when they lost to Washington. Ohio State, when they just lost to Michigan on the road by a small margin, fell four spots. Um, what was Texas's one loss to Oklahoma? They moved from number three to number nine, which is a, a decent drop in EAP poll. Uh, the coaches poll, they moved from, they were number five and they dropped, or sorry, they're number four, they dropped down to number 10. But the biggest drop for a loss this year in the polls has been Alabama dropping seven spots by losing to Texas. And that's what, 
because we're not thinking about it necessarily in November, almost December here, but the how the polls were arranged in September do matter because then you're trying to make up that ground. And that's kind of how you get slotted and that's how you get compared way back then. And again, Alabama starting lower and then having the biggest drop of any of these teams when they lost their one game is also what's hurting Alabama right now. I'm not saying it's unjustified. Like, again, I think they had a seven point drop because they lost by 10 points at home. And that's what's just going to kill this season. If it does happen that way, if they don't make the playoff, they lost by 10 points at home. Like that's what matters. (laughs) Right. No. Well, and so maybe this is the question for you then. Do you think a win over Georgia again, we'll touch on this here in just a second. You know, if, if the door opens for Alabama, and the opportunity is there. Does a win over Georgia make up for that? Are they able to you? Do you think they're able to jump back into the top four if a few other things break their way? If a few other things break their way, yeah, definitely. I don't think it it necessarily does it alone, um, right. and that's obviously the dominant conversation of this week. But um, you know, it adds certainly a good, really good win to Alabama's resume. The tricky part about all of this is all these metrics are going to be based off the final rankings. And so sometimes when you beat a really good team and that team drops and Georgia could drop, I mean, at best, maybe like number six, unless somebody else loses, then all of a sudden on your resume, it doesn't say you beat the number one team at the, it goes by the final rankings. And so it says you beat the number six team. And then it also says on Texas's resume that you beat a better Alabama team because Alabama would rise and then all of a sudden, Texas looks like it had a better win. So these aren't necessarily based on what your team was, what your opponent was ranked when it actually happened. Like Texas A&M was a top 25 team, if I'm not mistaken. Or or no, they were out of the poll, I think, uh, when Alabama played them. I'd have to double check that. Yeah, they were out. Um, but for instance, like, uh, you know, a team that should not have been in the poll early in the year or was a top five team in LSU, like it doesn't mean the same thing at the end of the year when that team is ranked lower. And so that's the tricky part. It's just kind of how it has always worked. But again, if Alabama beats Georgia, when you see best wins on ESPN on Sunday morning, when they're showing Alabama's resume card, it's not going to say number one, Georgia. After the fact, after the rankings come out, it might say number six, Georgia, because that's what Georgia's final ranking might be. And that's just, Again, and that's how it works. And it would be really impressive, though, for Alabama to beat Georgia, which has won 29 games in a row. They're two-time defending champions. They're the best team in the country in the polls. Like sometimes when you beat them, it makes them look worse. And that's <laughs> an oxymoron of it all. But that's what might happen in this case. So, what do you think is the most? Obviously, it's conference championship. Weekend, Pac-12 plays Friday, Big 12 Saturday morning, SEC is Saturday afternoon, and then we wrap up with the ACC and the Big 10 on Saturday night. What do you think is the most realistic path? Obviously, step one for Alabama is beat Georgia. Assuming that happens, and we'll discuss that a little bit more because I think you and I are both on the fence about that to begin with. But if we assume that that happens, what else do you think needs to happen? What do you think is the most likely scenario for Alabama to get into the playoff? So, I mean, when everybody's going to be watching Friday night, for the Pac-12 game, I think it helps Alabama for Oregon to win because I think an undefeated Washington team is going to be a tougher argument for Alabama to win. Um, I think Alabama has a chance to win an argument against a one-loss Oregon conference champion. But again, as we just talked about, they've always been ranked higher. 
I think a lot of uh, metrics would say that Oregon's going to be in if they win. So at the end of the day, I'm not sure that game matters a ton. I think, again, it's better for Alabama if Oregon wins, but I don't know if it's going to make a difference. So then you go into Saturday morning, the 11 a.m. Central time game, the Texas game um, against Oklahoma State. If Oklahoma State wins, and we'll know that basically by kickoff of of the Alabama-Georgia game, then I would safely say that's a win in your end game for Alabama starting at um, three o'clock central. So again, it, all it takes to me is one loss by Texas or one loss by Florida state. I don't think it's going to take multiple losses to get Alabama in. Um, so if it could happen with a Texas game in the middle of the day, then if Alabama was to win in the afternoon, then everybody's going to be watching the the night game. And again, I technically, I guess Michigan losing to Iowa would knock Michigan out and put Alabama in. I think that's a possibility. (laughs) It would be crazy. Um, But uh, I guess Brian Ferentz would be rehired if that happened. Oh, Um, my gosh. But they're going to win that game. It's going to be like 10 to 6 or something stupid. Right. So, I mean, it's possible. I don't think – like, I think those games are on basically at the same time. The ACC. Yeah, Big Ten, Big Ten, ACC are on at the same time. It would be this this weekend would be a lot more fun if the ACC championship was Friday night because then it would set the stage for kind of everything else. Because I'm yeah. I'm of the belief that like if Florida State goes down, every other conference championship game is effectively a play in game, right? Um, except for Iowa because they're the last one to play, so nobody really knows. Right. So, you know, it's treated like it's a play in game anyway. Right. Because if Florida State goes down, that's one less undefeated conference champ. And so assuming Michigan takes care of business, you would have them in and then you'd have basically have three spots for either, you know, a 12 and one Oregon or an undefeated Washington an undefeated Georgia or 12 and one Alabama mm-hmm. and then potentially Texas, assuming they take care of Oklahoma State. Right. If they don't and a few dominoes fall, then you could be looking at either Ohio State or Georgia back on their way into the playoff. But right. Yeah, like that's what it would come down to to me. I I don't think it would be any debate beyond that. If it again, you have the scenario of Texas and Florida State win. I think Alabama is out. Either Texas wins or Florida State wins. Alabama's in with the win. And then if both Texas and Florida State lose, then I think to me, if Georgia plays well enough against Alabama in a loss, I think Georgia would be in over Ohio State. I. I always hate when teams get punished for playing the extra game. Yeah. And honestly, it benefited Alabama in 2017 when they lost in the Iron Bowl. Auburn went to the SEC championship game. Auburn lost. Alabama got into the playoff. Even last year with LSU, LSU took another loss in the SEC championship game because they played an extra game and they played the hardest game of the year for them against Georgia. Like, I hate when teams get penalized for playing the extra game. In this case, Georgia won the SEC East. I think objectively they were better than Ohio State for the first 12 games of this season. They go to Atlanta to play a really good Alabama team. And if they lose, I don't think Ohio State should then jump um, Georgia. Georgia. Like you can say, yeah, Ohio State lost close on the road to Michigan. In this case, Georgia would have lost close, let's say, at home sort of in Atlanta. Like you can make that argument. But, again, they played an extra game. Georgia played a 13th game. So if you play a 13th game, you have a better chance of having one loss. So to me, I think rewarding a team that misses a conference championship is not the way to go. Luckily, this is the last year where that's (laughs) really going to happen. 
uh, because of divisions going away everywhere by next year. You're not going to have an Iowa with a chance, you know, to win their conference championship versus if this was next year and the Big Ten didn't have any divisions, then it would be Michigan-Ohio State again. They would just play each other twice. Um, and honestly, that's the better path to me because then you're putting your two best teams, and that's why divisions were eliminated. So this is the last year we have to worry about a team backing into the playoff after missing their conference championship unless they're like a – you know, nine, 10, 11 seed. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Um, be kind of interesting to see how it all plays out just cause there's, I don't know. I feel like anything and everything is still on the table going into conference championship weekend, which is what's going to make it fun. Um, but also like, it could also be very easy if like Georgia, Michigan, Washington, and Florida state all win, because then you'd have four undefeated conference champs and that's just seed them out. Um, so who knows? I, I don't think it'll happen that cleanly, but also we didn't think we'd get to this weird, I don't want to call it a doomsday scenario, but like, I don't know that we expected to be in this position, you know, a month ago, even though it was something that you and I had talked about probably a month and a half ago as a possibility. Yeah. And it's, and I wasn't covering college football when the playoff was being discussed and implemented 10 years ago 2013 is i guess when it really came together and then 2014 was the first year of it but there had to be someone in that room and i'm sure this was discussed back then i just wasn't covering it you have five power conferences and you have four playoff spots so it's so goofy math <laughs> says there's going to be one conference champion that's going to be left out and for most years that kind of sorts itself out the pac-12 for instance has not made the playoffs since 2016 with washington so usually you can say by now the Pac-12, no matter who wins this game, is not going to be in it. Or there's, you know, Big 12 sometimes, ACC sometimes champion that you know is not going to make it. That's not the case this year. And that's why this entire conversation about Alabama is happening, because there has to be one conference, at least one conference, that gets left out because you have five power conferences for one more year and four playoff spots. So simple math says one team is going to be left out. And I know like Alabama fans are going to say the SEC has made the playoff and has won national championships. And that's all true. It's all true. I don't think it can necessarily be a, a golden ticket for them either. Like, I think it would be wrong for the committee to sit there and look at past results of previous conference teams and apply them to the current year. It's just, it would be wrong um, because you can't, apply what another team did in a past year for a conference to what a team could do in this current year for a conference. It's just unfair one way or the other to a team this year. Um, it's unfair to the other teams. If hey, let's say they say, Oh, well, Clemson, you know, beat Alabama twice in the national championship as the ACC champion, we should give Florida state credit for that. No, like that doesn't yeah, make that's any not sense. how that works. Yeah. Right. And neither should the SEC get credit for what the teams have done in the past. Like it's just, you have to be very myopic and just look simply at this year. And I don't think you can apply conference history to any of this discussion. It's just, it's, it doesn't work. Yeah, no, totally agree with that. Paramount plus and the national park foundation present a mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount+. Plus. So, yes, 
you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. Let's dive right into Alabama, Georgia. There's a game. I didn't know there was a game. <laughs> um, right off the top, Mike, how does Alabama win this game? They have to stop shooting themselves in the foot. I know it seemed like they stopped doing that, but everybody watched the Auburn game, and that was certainly a problem for them again. Um, so, I mean, and Saban talked about this too, where they built up momentum basically from the second half of the Tennessee game on through. Um like we were all sitting at halftime, the Tennessee game saying like, what in the world is wrong with this team? Like those 20 to six, like they looked like trash in the first half. I think they would tell you that themselves. And then they came out in the second half and blew them out, came out, beat LSU, came out, blew out Kentucky, blew out, you know, Chattanooga, like they should have. And then, you know, Saban would talk about, you, you got to keep the momentum because sometimes when you lose it, it's hard to get back. And then they go into Auburn, and all of a sudden, the things that were problems for them early in the year were problems again with the touchdowns being called back by penalty. Seth McLaughlin's bad snap or you know miscommunication in a key moment. Jalen Murrow kind of making weird, questionable decisions, um, you know, which has been an issue for him. I think he's cleaned it up, but had the two ineligible um, downfield pass penalties that that could have cost him certainly. So. You start doing those things again. You start getting gashed on defense like we really haven't seen. Um, I mean, a Texas game, it kind of re reminded me of in a different way. Like it was more the running game with Auburn, but it was just like you felt like Auburn was really getting them on their heels, um, at, especially in the you know, third quarter, early fourth quarter. To me, it felt like that. Um, so it was a little bit of a throwback, and that's not a good thing for Alabama. I think you can discount it to some extent, saying it's the Iron Bowl, it's Jordan Hare, it's kind of in its own little box. But um, you can't be doing any of that stuff against Georgia. Like, it's not going to work against a much better Georgia team than Auburn. So that's kind of where it starts. But then to me, it's a question of still, even if you play a really clean game, you don't have the penalties, you don't have the mistakes, you don't have the turnovers, are you good enough from a talent standpoint at the skill positions especially to beat Georgia. And two years ago, the answer was yes. And that was a really good Georgia defense. It was also a really good Alabama offense with Bryce Young, Jamison Williams, John Mechie. The problem was when they lost Mechie, which he played most of that game in nine catches for, I think, 96 yards, and they got hurt. Then he didn't play in the playoff. And then they lost Jamison Williams in the second quarter of the national championship game. All of a sudden, they weren't the same sort of offense because they lost their two best skill players outside of Bryce. And that's when Georgia beat them. They don't have Jamison Williams this year. They probably don't have a John Mechie. I think Jermaine Burton's gotten better. I think he's been a really good receiver for him. But I don't think he's on that level. I don't think he's a first, second-round talent in the NFL right now. I think he's probably more of a mid-round talent, third, fourth, somewhere around there. So do they have enough right now at the skill positions? If Jason McClellan doesn't play, I think they can get by without him. I think he's been a solid player this year. I don't think he's been a difference maker necessarily. He's gotten some tough yards. Um, he's a gritty player. He's a physical player. But I think you can get some reproduction there with, with Roydell Williams from what Jace will give you. I think Jan Miller can give you some snaps. I think Jalen Milrow can certainly make plays. We've all seen that. But is it good enough? 
And yes, you're playing against a Georgia defense that is not as good as it was two years ago. So maybe that helps make up that gap. Um, but to me, it's still, do you have the talent on offense? Do you have the proven talent? Like I know we have the five-star rankings and all that, but like you have the, you line up that guy on the outside of the field and you know, he's going to beat his defender like Jamison Williams did, like Devontae Smith did before him. Like that's still a question with this team. And then you flip it the other way around and this Georgia offense, I think is better than it was two years ago. Um, they didn't have a chance to play Georgia last year. I think Georgia's offense was better last year than it was two years ago, but it could be even better this year. Cause I think Carson Beck is probably a little bit more talented than Stetson Bennett. Um, yeah. Their running game is very good. Obviously Brock Bowers and the receivers are pretty good too. So under offensive line, not to forget, because that offensive line has kept Carson Beck really clean the entire year. So, again, it's a question of do you have enough talent? And they have Cooley, they have Terrion, they have Caleb Downs, they have Malachi Moore, they have Chris Braswell, they have Dallas Turner. Is that enough to beat Georgia? I think it's really close, but it's closer than any other game they've played this year. Um, so, again, that's just the question. You line up the two most talented teams in college football – Georgia still might be the most talented team in college football and Alabama might be the second most. So that could leave you in the wrong side of the equation there. I think that's all fair. Um, and I think where, where Alabama is very strong in this game, like they need to hammer that home in a way that maybe we haven't seen yet this season. You look at, you're like, where are they strong defensively? They're very, very good in the secondary. I think that's going to match up well with, you know, however many Georgia receivers they have. Carson Beck has hit like seven different guys 20 times this season. Part of that is because, you know, it took Dominic Lovick a little bit of time to, you know, get adjusted to the offense. Also, Brock Bowers has been hurt. Lad McConkey has been hurt. So they've had other guys that have needed to step up. This is going to be one of the few games, you know, we're assuming that the Brock Bowers will be healthy. Lad McConkey will be healthy. One of the few games this season where those two guys specifically, um, preseason all SEC selections, are going to be on the field at the same time. And so, how does Alabama's secondary, how do they attack that, right? Like, and I think they've dropped a few hints maybe in previous games where, you know, because I think you start with Brock Bowers. Um, it was really telling to me when Malachi Moore said earlier this week that, you know, Georgia uses him the same way the Chiefs use Travis Kelsey. Well, I'm a Chiefs fan, so I know exactly how the Chiefs use Travis Kelsey, right? They line him up everywhere. But I've also seen how teams have been able to take Travis Kelsey out of it or disrupt him. They beat him up on the line of scrimmage and they double him. So, okay, how does Alabama do that? In recent weeks, we've seen Caleb Downs play a lot of star. We've seen him play a lot in the slot. I think that's going to be an answer. I don't know if it's going to be the answer, but I think it's something that they're going to try, right? He's a little bit more physical than Malachi and Terrion. He's a little bit bigger. He's a surefire tackler. Um, that's a guy that can probably hand fight with Bowers at the line of scrimmage. Also, if you leave him in the slot, which is where Dominic Lovett has done a lot of his damage, um, Caleb Downs can cover him too. The interesting part about that is that it takes away one of your safeties. Um, when Terrion Arnold shifts to star, you can bring Trey Amos off the bench, and he's very good at corner opposite Kool-Aid, and then you've got Downs and Moore in the back. When you bring Downs to star, I know Terrion played safety in high school, but it's not something that he's done a ton of over the last couple of years at Alabama. So, you know, are you trusting Jalen Key, who looked a step slow against Auburn? Are you trusting Christian Story or Devonta Smith, who have played a little bit in recent weeks? Like, I'm kind of, you know, if, if Downs goes to star, I think that's great. But, like, what do you do behind him? Like, what's the other answer, um, you know, in terms of, one, disrupting Bowers, and then, two, 
try and stop everybody else around them too. Cause like you can double Bowers and take him out of the game, but you still got to guard everybody else. And so I don't know what the, the answer would be at safety. If you move downs down the other thing um, you got to affect Carson Beck. And you mentioned it like George's offensive line, like they've kept him upright all season. Like you look at the numbers, George's offensive line has allowed 10 sacks this season. They have allowed 88 total pressures. They have faced teams that have good pass rushes like Tennessee, like Missouri. Ole Miss was pretty productive when it came to rushing the passer this season. Now here comes Alabama, and I don't know that they've seen a pass rush quite like Alabama um, with Braswell and Dallas Turner off the edge. Uh, Pro Football Focus tracks pass rush productivity, which is like per snap basis pass rushing success. Um, Braswell is ranked sixth in the country among edge rushers who have at least 100 pass rush snaps this season. Dallas Turner ranks 13th. Georgia has done well facing top 50 edge rushers in terms of pass rush productivity. They have not faced a team that has two in the top 50. Um, so you combine that with, you know, those guys need to win because if you try to blitz Carson Beck, he's just as effective um, than when he's not under pressure. When he's not under pressure, he's completing north of 70% of his passes. When he's blitzed, he's still completing north of 70% of his passes. You got to win by rushing like your base defense. Like it's imperative that Braswell and Turner, Justin Aboigby, Tim Keenan, like those dudes have to win because you can't you can't send pressure at Beck because he'll beat it all the time. Because like Deontay Lawson, really good at pressuring off blitzes. Um, but if you take him out of the middle, I feel like Beck is just going to eat up those quick, easy passes over the middle. So like, you know, it's a combination of like the secondary, maybe having to shift around to try and disrupt the rhythm of the receivers. But then also the guys up front have to get home have to get home it's to me a question still of how much can you play turner and braswell at the same time um because a good question. i feel like we saw more and i don't have the stats in front of me to back this up but i feel like they did more of the turner and will anderson stuff even two years ago in the sec championship on the field together um or just in general the last couple of years and this year there's been more of the three three look where you're gonna have one of those outside guys on the field you kind of rotate them which helps but you're averaging either turner or braswell out there and you're trying to keep those three big guys on the field and i think it's probably against this georgia offensive line against this georgia running game i feel like they're gonna lean towards having the three big guys out there whether it's you know keenan avoid b tim smith keenan avoid b otis like you're probably going to need that to stop the run. And so that might necessitate only having one of Turner or Braswell out there along with your two inside guys, if you're in nickel most of the time. And again, I think you might need to be in nickel because you're probably going to need to bring a safety down to be on Bowers and then have two deep safeties. So that gets you into a little bit of a, a pickle in the <laughs> pickle in the nickel, if you will, um, with <laughs> the star down on Bowers. And then you're trying to keep three defensive line on the field because Georgia can still run. Um, and so that leaves you like it would be ideal to have Braswell and Turner both coming off the edges and trying to get to Beck at the same time. But like realistically, I just don't think that's going to we're going to see that too often um, because they're probably going to be rotating more than they'll be on the field together. No, I think that's fair. Um, you know, or do, does one of them just, you know, do you have Turner off the edge? Braswell operates as like the defensive end opposite of Boyd B. And then you've got a Boyd B and Keenan in the middle. That way you've still got your four. Um, you know, downs, I think playing star too might help in run defense because he's such a sure tackler. Um, you know, and then if they, if Georgia rolls out two tight ends, which they did quite a bit against Georgia tech as well, like you can, you know, Campbell, I think is fast enough to maybe cover a non Brock Bowers tight end. He may not have the coverage skills, but he can at least, you know, point and go, go cover him, go clobber him. Right. Um, 
I don't know if that's an answer, but like, you know, is that something you think that could be effective if they just, you know, maybe play Braswell as the down lineman? They can try. And then I think it just, it's kind of a feel thing where is Georgia, if, if they're seeing that look, if Georgia's seeing Braswell in there and only two, two big guys, two 300 pounders, is Georgia just going run all the time with, you know, Milton or whatever the case may be? And that could be their key. And then if Alabama gets into the big personnel, are they going to Bowers? Are they doing something different? If you go into the slot, just working a different way. Um, like that's the stuff that offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators are going to be kind of going at each other with. But to me, I think you test it out maybe, and you can see if you can stop the run with Braswell on the field as your third lineman. If it works, then great. Like you're in a good spot. If it doesn't, then you might have to put a third guy in there. And then again, you're you're kind of playing chase a little bit. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to kind of watch that chess match, especially early on. Um, you know, where is the success coming from? Who who wins those battles and what that'll mean moving forward. Offensively, um Georgia's so Georgia's defense, offensively for Alabama, Georgia's defensive strength this season is in the secondary, not unlike Alabama. Um they don't have as much depth or as much star power in the front seven as they have before. I think they got a couple of young guys playing linebacker. I think this could be a prime opportunity and a really big, big game for Jalen Milrow just because he's he's a mobile quarterback. Like, I, There's one train of thought where it's like, okay, Kirby came from the Saban tree. They run almost almost identical defenses. Like they recruit the same personnel. They they run a lot of the same concepts. And we know that Saban's defense struggles with a lot of pre-snap, post-snap motion stuff, that motion-based offense that Sark utilized in the passing game and that Auburn utilized in the run game. So Georgia's defense has struggled with that too. So then you bring in Milrow, who is obviously a mobile quarterback. He's way more willing to step up in the pocket to run a little bit here and there. Um, you know, and I'm thinking like. Okay, a guy like Jam Miller is a guy that can get east to west very, very fast. A guy like Kendrick Law is a guy that can get east to west very, very fast. Like, how much can Alabama utilize a little bit of motion and just, you know, can Milrow put those linebackers in a blender and just make them, you know, like I, he's going to have to make a lot of big plays, I think, both run and pass game. I, it's not maybe going to be similar to like AM where they drop back 40 times and just chuck the ball down the field, but like, I wouldn't be shocked if Alabama dropped back 35 or 40 times in this game, but then Milrow takes off and runs 10 or 12 times just because that's that I think that's a part of Georgia's defense that they can exploit. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's still, you know, maybe you try, you know, assuming they don't have Jace, you try to get some of the running game going traditionally. Um, you know, you still have Stackhouse, you know, for that Georgia front seven um i'm just looking to see where they rank in terms of it's not a defense now. that gets a lot of pressure but they right. do they do force some turnovers so they're 26 in the country right now and allowing 117 rushing yards a game they allow about just under four yards a carry so it's you know not nearly as dominant as it was before um so but again i don't know if alabama as we talked about all year like can i picture alabama just putting their heads down and running the ball 40 times and averaging six yards a carry and like beating Georgia that way. I just don't, I don't see it. So maybe uh, not that way, but that's where I think like Milrow, right. you, know, you look at, right. You look at some of the, who are the teams that have had success against Georgia? Like they, they also survived the Jordan hair voodoo against mm -hmm. Hugh freeze and Auburn ran for like 200 yards. Um, Georgia tech last week, a lot of motion based stuff with Haynes, Haynes King, right. Former A&M quarterback, 
um, a lot of read option stuff that worked out. Mizzou, I, obviously they have Cody Schrader and they have the personnel to just kind of pound it right at him. But like Brady Cook was doing a lot of stuff in motion and doing some RPOs and stuff like that. I wonder, you know, we haven't seen a ton, ton, ton of that from Alabama's offense, but I wonder if this is the week to roll it out and see it's, you know, like, hey, like, can you set up some screens? Can you set up some RPOs? Can you get Miller on the move? just to give them a bunch of different looks, like a bunch of window dressing and stuff to confuse them. Yeah, that's that's what I'm getting at, is I don't think you can just line up the traditional running game like Alabama's trying to do early in the year, especially, and just run Rodell Williams up the middle Yeah, um, and move the ball that way and with any sort of consistency. So I agree. Like, I think you do have to kind of get outside the box a little bit, like we saw Alabama do later in the year. And it's just a matter of how well it works. And, you know, Kirby's really good defensive mind, and – they still have really good players on that Georgia defense. And, um, like, you know, there's still going to be a, a back and forth that goes on there. But, you know, we'll see. Um, that, to me, the whole idea of like, – a couple of years ago, I thought Alabama's offense versus Georgia's defense was the bigger kind of debate or bigger thing to look for. Like, could they move the ball? Like, a really good Alabama offense against a really good Georgia defense – to me, this year it's still Georgia's offense versus Alabama's defense. A really good Georgia offense versus a really good Alabama defense. So this other conversation of Alabama's offense, Georgia's defense, I feel like there's flaws on each side, probably more so than the other side of it. Um, and it's just going to come down to how well can you mask those? How well do your players like Jalen Milrow, who's shown good things, shown bad things, and sometimes it's a little bit in, in between, like where does he fall in that spectrum? The LSU game, he was great, like perfect, like did everything you need to do in that game. But obviously other games he hasn't been. So it's it's hard to say, like, would all this work? Sometimes it just depends on how well you execute and you can get Jalen Miller outside the pocket. He's going to make the right decision. Uh, if he's pressured, does he throw the ball away? Does he throw back across his body? Does like what what is he doing when he gets outside the pocket? Because there's a lot of decisions that he has to make out there. And as we've seen, sometimes he doesn't make the right decision. Yeah, no, and I think I maybe I'm more willing to, you know, call the Iron Bowl more an aberration, um, you know, just like I, I think you can kind of not burn the tapes. I think there's a lot of lessons you can learn from that, especially defensively. But like that's, you know, up until then, we have seen, you know, more or less the the final form version of Jalen Milrow. Like, I, I don't know if you played Pokemon growing up, but there was a time I think after the LSU game where I was like, he's in his Charizard version now, like he is a fire breathing weapon and. The Auburn was kind of a little bit of the Auburn game was a little bit of a regression because of the penalties, um, you know, but in that game, he did not turn the ball over, which I thought was crucial in giving Alabama, obviously, the opportunity that they did to win the game. There were a lot of other little things that they need to fix, but like, you know, part of playing a clean game is obviously not committing the turnovers to pull points off the board, but also not turning the ball over because this is a Georgia team that thrives off making turnovers kill you. And that's been an underrated part of this Alabama team, I think in the second half of the year um, is avoiding the turnovers. And they, you know, they had what was the interception against Kentucky and then, you know, Terry came right back with his own. So that kind of got erased. Um, but I'm looking zero turnovers against Auburn, zero against Chattanooga. They had two against Kentucky. I'm forgetting what the other one was. It might've been a uh, muff punt by Kool-Aid. Does that count as a turnover though? I think it might not. Um, there's, oh, there's... Did they maybe fumble the ball too? Yeah, yeah. I now I'm doubting my own uh my own mind here, but I'll go check out what happened in that game. 
Um, so scoring drives. Alabama had an interception. Yeah, it must have been a muff punt then is what they're That's counting. Right. I, I think in the NFL they don't count that as a turnover, but I guess in college they do. Um, LSU, they had zero turnovers. Arkansas, they had zero turnovers. The two against Tennessee, I think, were both in the first half. So you've gone Arkansas, none. LSU, none. Chattanooga, none. Auburn, none. You had a little bit against Kentucky and then the first half of the Tennessee game. But overall, like – there has not been a turnover issue with this offense. And that's obviously going to be crucially important in this game. Um, but just, and I think Milrow's gone now. I think I looked it up the other day. He has one interception in his last 94 passes. Yeah. Like he's the one against Kentucky. Yeah. So that's, that's part of, you know, when, when you talk about playing a clean game, like one, not committing turnovers to pull points off the board Two, if you're on defense, right? Like when Alabama's defense, I've been tracking this, like when Alabama's defense commits, commits a penalty the opposing offense normally scores on that same drive so like you can't do that but then also like protect the ball protect the ball protect the ball like you cannot give this georgia offense extra opportunity yep yeah that's keys to the game saturday morning don't turn the ball <laughs> over i think yeah right like some of them are like lol like obvious <laughs> but like you know stop the run limit bowers you got to get pressure on beck um no dumb mistakes right no penalties no turnovers um, but then also establish the mill row because I think he's he's the type of athlete that can, you know, put a defense like this in more compromising positions than not. Um, and he seems to have the confidence and the wherewithal to recognize that in real time. Like I know the Auburn game was a little I don't want to call it fluky, but it was definitely off the beaten path from what we had seen, you know, the previous three weeks since the bye week. And really, I mean, since the second half of the Tennessee game. Um, you know, he has really made strides in not only manipulating defenses, but understanding in real time that he's manipulating these defenses and then, you know, attacking the the open space accordingly. So um, he's going to have to be at his best to, to give Alabama a chance in this game. You got a you got a prediction or any other final thoughts before we sign off here? I passed on a prediction in the uh, the Jordan Hill podcast I did with Dogs 247. And I will pass on a prediction for right now because I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> So you can subscribe to Bama 24-7 and assuming Brett Greenberg collects all of our predictions, you can find them on our VIP board on Bama247.com later this week. I like that. I like that. I haven't I haven't settled on a score yet, but I know that uh, maybe to give people a hint on where I'm leaning, um, this is the game Alabama has to go win. Like they have to go prove it. They have to go show that they can go win a game like this and beat a, a, another big team like this like they got they gotta they gotta show me that they can do it I, I believe that they can do it but I gotta see it and when I see it is when I'll 110% believe it I'll say this I'll say going into literally walking into Mercedes-Benz Stadium two years ago I had a good feeling about that Alabama team in that game um, I even though there's a lot of doubt they were six-point underdogs in that game I was overhearing Georgia writers talking in, in the security line about how Georgia's going to win and talking about the playoff and all that. I just had a feeling Alabama was going to win that game and they did. And they won it convincingly. I will say right now, I do not have the same feeling about this team. I'm not saying they're going to lose, but my confidence level of them pulling off an upset is not nearly as high as it was two years ago. That's interesting for all the reasons I've stated. So again, I'm not saying you're going to lose. I haven't decided that in my mind yet, but I'm not as confident and then pulling it off as I was two years ago. 
I think the thing I'm most confident in is that uh, come Saturday at Mercedes-Benz Stadium, uh, we are going to eat Chick-fil-A in some form or fashion because uh, Mercedes-Benz has Chick-fil-A's somewhere on the concourse. And because it's Saturday, they're going to be open and I can't wait. Well, have it in the press box. You don't have to go to the concourse. Don't bring it to you. I didn't know that. That, See, there's so many things I'm learning in my first year on the SEC beat. That and a soft serve machine. So get ready for that as well. I love creamy delights. That sounds amazing. Um, this game is going to be amazing, Mike. I appreciate you taking the time to join us as always. Um, any other final thoughts here before we sign off? All good. I'm just ready for Saturday. Awesome. Uh, me too. We'll be in Atlanta. Uh, probably by the time you guys are listening to this, this will go up sometime early Friday morning. You can listen to it on your drive into Atlanta, whether you're heading there Friday or Saturday. I know we're going to get there to probably, um, you know, go watch the Pac-12 championship game somewhere. At least uh, that's what I want to do. I guess I'm not 100% sure what the what the plan is. But uh, we'll be back sometime after the game and after I think the playoffs and bowl matchups get announced to recap the game and where Alabama ultimately goes and maybe take an early look ahead to that and maybe talk some portal stuff as well. Um, so that'll all be after the game. Again, 3 p.m. kickoff Central Time, 4 Eastern Time on CBS. The final SEC game on CBS is between Alabama and Georgia. I can't think of a better game to send off um, the SEC-CBS relationship. But in the meantime, uh, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcast, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, even our Bama 247 YouTube page. Subscribe to Bama 247 and 247 Sports. Believe we still have deals Um, that are running so that you guys can get a discounted subscription. You guys should absolutely do that uh, if you love college sports, but especially if you're an Alabama fan. Thank you again so much for listening, you guys. We will talk again soon. Bright shining light, Sarajevo, and they needed to kill that light. From producers Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, explore how art and music sustained hope during the siege of Sarajevo. Thanks in part to humanitarians and the band U2. U2, they represent a personification of our resistance. The Hollywood Reporter hails Kiss the Future, moving and inspirational. Kiss the Future! Viva Sarajevo! Kiss the Future, new documentary now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Go to Paramount Plus to try it free. Terms apply.